Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech companies. We have another event coming up this year, the Startup Symposium in Houston, Texas, October 25th through the 26th. If you're a MedTech company and you're in the startup ecosystem, you're not going to want to miss it. Whether you're a service provider, investor, or startup, you're going to want to be there. Use the code PM20 for 20% off your ticket. Speaking of the Startup Symposium, we are grateful for our sponsorship from Valentium, who has sponsored both the Midwest Showcase and the Startup Symposium this year. They are also a sponsor of this podcast. Valentium is a contract design and manufacturing firm specializing in end-to-end development, production, and post-market support of diagnostic and therapeutic active medical devices especially active implantables and other class three medical devices. Valentium's core competencies include electrical engineering and design, mechanical engineering and design, embedded software, software as a medical device, mobile apps, apps, CGMP contract manufacturing, embedded cybersecurity, OT cybersecurity, systems engineering, human factors and feasibility and usability, automated test systems, and so much more. With customers all over the world, Valentium works with clients in every stage and situation, ranging from startups seeking funding to established Fortune 100 companies. Visit valentium.com to explore your next step in medical device development. In this episode, it is our second of our three-part series where our guests are Ed Steakley at Cognition IP, Devin Campbell at Product, and myself discuss intellectual property, patents, trade secrets, overall strategy around these topics, why they are so important, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Ed and Devin. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project like that we're live Devin and Ed welcome to the podcast thank you thanks for having us yeah absolutely so um, uh, Devin I'll start with you and, and then we'll go to Ed here because uh, that's the order of the uh, floating squares on my screen um, before Devin before you introduce yourself um, for the listeners who's listening in Devin is our first four-time podcast guest now of this episode we did a three-part series um, back in um, the 47, 48, 49 range of the podcast series. Um, we are now at episode 150 plus, depending on when this airs. And so uh, if you're listening in, you should go check out Devin's old episodes as well. But uh, Devin, intro to yourself and who you are and what you do. 
think one of those episodes is in your top 10, right? Oh, oh yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, we yeah. Um, we try to break down our top 10s because uh, it's unfair for people who were on earlier uh, before we have the audience we did. So we, we try to break it down a little bit. And yours is one of our most popular um, first half of the podcast evolution uh, uh, episodes. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Maybe I should just quit while I'm ahead and just not talk the rest of this episode. No, 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 no. <laughs> now you're good because this one's going to be even more than the other ones. <laughs> sure. So um, me, in a nutshell, um, I'm a mechanical engineer. I've been uh, in the medical device industry since the 90s. I've been very lucky to have been a part of a lot of very cool companies with awesome trajectories, um, generates a lot of patents of a lot of really cool and great medical devices that touch the lives of a lot of patients. Um, I've been blessed with the opportunity to be uh, involved in three exits uh, during that time frame. Um, and after my second of three exits, I started Product, uh, my own advisory firm, to be able to help emerging entrepreneurs in earlier stage med tech, medical device, uh, and, and device therapeutic companies Kind of understand like what's coming like what's in the future and how do we strategically build for a successful launch and an exit um looking at what we're doing now and what we need to do later and kind of build the strategy and then roll up the sleeves and get in and like build some of the infrastructure for them awesome i appreciate the intro and uh ed yeah thank you Dwayne. a little bit about me so um, yeah, I've been practicing intellectual property law for over 23 years, and during that time I've worked for large law firms, Fortune 5 companies. I was a senior patent counsel at Apple for many years. I've been head of IP at startup company, and then uh, various other uh, companies where I was head of uh, trademarks and, and whatnot. So over these years I've seen uh, most different issues and, and uh, situations with intellectual property patents, trademark copyrights, uh, trade secrets. And currently I am head of uh, Cognition IP, uh, the, the law firm. Cognition IP is actually a hybrid company in that we have a technology company and a boutique law firm. Cognition IP actually started out of Y Combinator in winter of 2018. So we've now been around many years and, and it's been interesting to see a lot of uh, technology development from our perspective. We, we focus a lot on helping startup early stage companies uh, secure, protect their intellectual property and, and help them strategize with the, the approach to protecting their, their IP and uh, at a somewhat cost-effective uh, basis. Awesome. Great, great. I appreciate the backgrounds. So um, we're going to kind of hop hop right into this one. Um, I guess, you know, an area to, to, to start in a place where um, from like a layman's, a, a layman's perspective of, you know, where I sometimes get confused and, you know, we're talking about the outline of what we wanted to talk about here. 80% of devices that come to market in a given year 
at least 80. Um, I think the last time I looked at the stat are, are 510k products, right? Um, so by a regulatory definition, which is where some of my background sits, you're substantially equivalent to something else on the market. Now, when I started learning about patents and what's patentable, it confused me because, well, how can you get a patent if you're substantially equivalent to something else, right? And so this is me being very basic on in terms of the definition. Um, I'm just curious, like, if you can maybe kind of lay some of this this groundwork for me in terms of the USPTO and patentability versus 510K and predicate devices and, and maybe kind of make sense of some of this for us to start. Yeah, Devin, maybe you could give a quick background about the predicate devices and then the approval, and then I can tie that into the uh, ability to patent and the need to understand whether patents exist. Yeah, we're not, I'm not talking about de novo or PMAs. Um, you're demonstrating that the product that you're bringing is uh, substantially equivalent, SE, to the other devices. And you might choose a particular predicate device, generally the most recent one that has been cleared, but you can also choose um, other comparative um, devices that are also out there that are maybe more appropriate to you and also within the FDA's purview, right? Other prior 510Ks. And when you do that, you demonstrate to the FDA with objective evidence that your product is as safe and as effective, if not better, but we're not looking for better, we're looking for substantially equivalent, that it's as safe and effective as the other products on market. And then you, you know, you're basically going to the FDA to say, do you agree with that? And do, you, do we have, do you approve our ability to market this product? And if they take a look at all the data and they come back and they say, yeah, we believe that you've done enough studies, everything's substantially equivalent. You're, you're as good as the other things that you've called out as uh, predicate devices or as comparable devices, um, go ahead. In, in a super, super abbreviated version, I mean, that's, that's kind of the idea. I, I wish the process was that easy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Ed. Yeah, so that, that's a, a good foundation uh, to tie into patents. So, a predicate device, then you're you're looking for a substantially equivalent type of functionality on, on which you can base your your developed device. And when we think about patents, we we need to think of two different areas. One is infringement, and the other is patentability. So, when you, when when a company develops new technology, it's important to understand whether or not your technology infringes another patent. So. With respect to trying to get FDA approval for a predicate or based on a predicate device, it is very possible, highly likely, that that uh, predicate device may have patents that actually cover that device. So it's it's very important to understand if there are such patents that exist because if there is a patent that that does exist, while one could get FDA approval without either a license uh, to that to that patent or ownership of that earlier patent, that could prevent one from commercializing that technology. So, so that's something that one should consider with a predi predicate device when you submit something that's substantially equivalent, that could 
be basically the company saying that we, we infringe because we are similar to this patent or to this technology, which may have a patent that underlies that initial uh, predicate device. And patents exist for a period of 20 years from an initial patent application filing. So there, there could be patents out there for, for many, many years. And then from the standpoint of patentability, so a substantially equivalent product, you can uh, have similar functionality, substantially similar functionality, where you could obtain patentability is if a product has new improved functionality uh, in the device itself. So it's, it's, it's a little bit different and it's not used for FDA approval, but in, in those situations where you have processing functionality, different structures of your device, which it could be considered a new device, right? But if you have new functionality that goes beyond the predicate device, that's where you might have material that could be uh, patented. You also have some, some room there too, when you know we've got a device that does the same thing in the end. So think of it like an in vitro diagnostic, right? It makes the same measurement. It has the same sensitivity, specificity, you know, uh, you know, has all the same performance criteria of the other device, but maybe uses a completely different technology to get there, right? So your your substantial your five ten k pathway, you know, your predicate device might do it differently than you do it, um, but in the end, you both produce the same clinical data, and you're demonstrating that you do produce the same clinical data, and you're as accurate and as sensitive as they are. Um, that's also obviously a space where you have lots of fertile ground for patentability. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about um, uh, de novo um, and from an IP perspective, because you know, from a regulatory standpoint, on a de novo, you, you know, you're 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 not a you're not a PMA, so you're not a class three medical device, but there's nothing else that te technically you know, you're not substantially equivalent to something else on the market. You're doing something new and novel in, in again, in, in my head, that would mean, well, Hey, uh, you know, IP perspective, you must be like probably okay. Right. But, but maybe Ed, you could, um, uh, educate us on, on that and some of the considerations there. Yeah. For a de novo product where when I think of that, if you have a new product, that's not on market or not approved, then from a, again, from this patentability standpoint, likely there is something there functionality right that's not that doesn't exist in other products that can be patented but i think still from a freedom to operate this potential infringement of another patent the the need to understand a patent landscape or whether patents exist that are related to that new product should still be done because it does take uh, quite some time for de novo products to be approved through the FDA. And again, it could be that maybe someone else had submitted um, an application uh, for their, their device. Uh, and, and then also that that uh, company may have filed for a patent application similar to what a new company is developing. So um, I think what, what's really important here is to know that regardless of whether you have a uh, device that you're, you're trying to move through quickly through a predict device or a de novo device, it's very, very important to understand if there are patents that that might exist, patent applications that are pending that might cover the new product. So that's, yeah, Devin, you go ahead. Well, I mean, 
part of the arc of our three-part conversation that we're doing right now brings us back to, you know, as a company is trying to prepare themselves to do fundraising and go and secure an A round or a B round or even their earlier C rounds, mm -hmm. um, this is a pretty important one for us to talk about, right? That having, when I'm performing diligence on behalf of a very big VC, one of the things that we very easily ask is, you, know, you may not have patented something yet, but have you at least done your FTO and FTO analysis? And is it well informed, right? Uh, there's a difference between me just Googling some things and coming up with, I think I'm okay, versus having a professional like, you know, cognition IP come in and help you do that in a better way, right? Sure. Um, so that's like one of those red flags that I would look at and say, well, wait a second, you don't really know so why would we want to like throw money at this and continue to fuel that fire if at the end we might find out we don't have the path that we were trying to take in front of us. We don't have that available. Yeah. Um, so FTO is important to dwell on. Yeah. So let's, well, okay. So let's talk about that, right? Um, uh, Ed, you mentioned freedom to operate. Uh, Devin used the acronym FTO. Um, we all hear this. Oh, we need a freedom to operate analysis. We, you, you, you both just mentioned it. What is freedom to operate? Um, when, when, as a startup company, do I think about this? Um, surely it has to be before a Series A round, right? Um, and so, um, yeah, kind of break this down for me. Yeah, so a freedom to operate is a formal search for technology performed maybe by a patent firm. There, there are other service firms that can do a search. And what they're looking for are patent applications that are pending or issued patents. So we're, what we're trying to do is find related uh, patent patents that might cover the newly developed technology or product. The freedom to operate is a process by which the, the patent attorney or the firm will review those patents or patent applications that are found and assess the relevance and, and how close those patents uh, might cover the proposed product. So what we're trying to do is see, is there a patent that you should be concerned about? And if there is, then we need to do something about it. And I'll get to that in a second. But with respect to a freedom to operate, I think it's very important for medical devices to do a freedom to operate search and analysis very early on. Because if you do find a patent later on, that could basically block your technology. That that's not that's not good at all. So doing doing these searches. You, go ahead. I'm just gonna say like it doesn't. It's not an all or nothing situation. Also, right? So you know. Let's say you're a really small startup, right? You're two people, you've got some grant money, you've got some seed money, um, and you don't necessarily have the funds to go and hire like a professional to come and do it. I would rather you at least try to do some patent searches on your own to make it to understand. Because if you do find something that clearly is exactly what you're trying to do, you know, then at least you found it. Um, so you, you can find those like obvious no's. I think you can generally find those yourself if you're spending a little time like learning how to search the patent databases and how to understand like the material that's out there. It's those adjacent technologies, right? It's
it's the things that's close to you, or maybe it's a different industry that uses, so you're just looking very specifically in your lane, but maybe a lane or two next to you is doing something like water testing or something like that, is using a very similar technology and they've got patent landscape there, but you're not thinking to look there because you're thinking very narrowly as a medical device. That's where I think bringing a professional in kind of helps you do it. But if I'm doing diligence and I see that you've at least done some and you acknowledge the fact that you're going to need to do more, and maybe that's part of what your raise is for, is to, and one of the first things we'll do is, is do a more exhaustive uh, FTO analysis, and maybe there's milestone payments or something like associated with that. Um, it's kind of a way that you can half step your way to it. But in the end, if you were to just hang your hat completely on a self-driven one and you don't really know what you're doing, that would be a bit of a red flag for me. Got it. So so if I looked at FTO, I translated to other areas of a startup company's business. This is like that initial reimbursement assessment or regulatory assessment that is going to inform my patent plan throughout the life cycle of my company, correct? That's correct. We got we got shaking heads. Perfect. That's what we need. Yeah. Um, cool. Okay. Um, all right. So so once you've evaluated this, right, and, and you have this this freedom to operate landscape assessment done you understand what how do you how do you choose your path moving forward um right like what what's the next steps from there yeah i can address that so when when this uh, patent search is done it's very useful information there's a patent landscape patent search freedom to operate search Ultimately, we, we have an understanding of patents and also who are the companies that are filing the patent. So there's intelligence that you might learn about other companies, potential competitors. So uh, from, from that standpoint, there's useful information. Uh, what, what's really interesting, though, is once you understand if there are patents with a freedom to operate search, I've worked with many companies where we're looking at, okay, there's, there's a patent that we found. It looks problematic, but then when you start dissecting it, we're able to identify uh, some specific requirements in the patent claims or even ways that we can uh, engineer around those patents. So that's where if you become very sophisticated in using the freedom to operate search and you find problematic patents, it's not the end of the road. Like Devin said, you can still uh, design your product slightly around it uh, possibly. And if you can't, then there, there may be an opportunity to license patent rights from the owner of the patent. So this is a really, I think, important process early on in the company. And you do benefit many ways from doing the search. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me jump on that a little bit. Um, so my first, the first company I joined out of my master's and I was there for a long time. Um, and we, we were great at bringing lots and lots of in vitro diagnostic tissue-based products to market. And one of the things that like I learned like early as a contributing engineer there, but then also as, as a leader, um, we would use our own patents as something to say, well, okay, how would we work around our patent? Because we know other people are doing the same thing. So how do we bring this next product to market in a way that we can work around our existing patents if we need to? Of course, we'll use our existing patents. We should. We should exploit them as, as much as we can. But how might we go around it and then do a little bit of work and then maybe even patent that going around it? And so my point there is that 
the FTO gives you the opportunity not just to understand the landscape that you can bring your product to market, but how you could use your your IP and specifically patents as blocking patents as a way to say, well, that's not exactly how we're going to do it, but we, if we go around somebody else's patent in a way that we can get quick, you know, we can get approval. It then prevents that other company, your potential competitor in the medical device space, from being able to do the same thing and, and make more use of their patent because you kind of patented around it. Does that make sense? It, so it does. I think FTO is a good, it's a great strategic move as well as an executive to say, well, we can do this, we can do this. We're not going to go down this, this route, but we might as well try to patent it and see if we can get, you know, expanded, you know, large enough claims that it becomes a blocking patent. Yeah. I'm glad you jumped on this because that was my next question was like for a product person and a person who's thinking about, okay, well, well, how are we going to commercialize this? Right. You, you talk about regulatory considerations, right? Well, how am I, you know, is there a way to get what I desire in a less regulated space? Right. Is there a way to get what I desire and also get reimbursement? So you're thinking about those things. And so I, that, that was my next question, Devin, you already answered it, but it was like, well, how, as a product person, do you think about patents and, and commercialization and how do I get what I need to get to in order to have a successful commercial product? Right. Cause commercialization for, for, all intents and purposes is like, that's, that's the valley of death, right? Um, you know, getting people to actually purchase your product, boy, that's, that's difficult. And so I'm just curious on, on, on how you do that. And that answered my question, not jumping too far ahead. Um, but the logical question in my mind, if I'm a startup company is hey, Devin love to hear it, all the patent strategy and, and how I can block other people from getting to market. But my goal is just to, to exit after my first product, and be done with it, right? Um, however, I'm assuming that uh, M&A, during M&A activity, patents are fairly important. Um, do one of y'all wanna to touch on that piece too? Uh, I can start first. So yeah, in my experience, I've been involved in many uh, acquisitions and the value of patents it has its place, right? Uh, I, I think that when the acquiring company looks at that, they, they do want to know what what is there to protect the technology. So I, I think they have value definitely in an M&A. Um, with that said, though, I think most acquiring companies are, are looking for the technology and the talent, the people of the company for an acquisition. But having the, the patents really do add a feather to the cap or add a lot more value uh, it's hard to say exactly what that is, but it, it it is concrete and definitive. Yeah, and 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 I think for me, you know, when we talk to companies about going through an exit and you know what adds value, and then what just holds value, right? Like for me, um, I think of like a like a, a QMS is a great example of something that just doesn't deter from value, right? But that's an area where if your QMS isn't up to, to what it needs to be, a strategic can go, boy, that's gonna be a lot of work. You know what, you're probably only worth this. But if you have a QMS, you, you probably maintain. Is patents a value increase for you when you get to an exit, Devin? So let's expand the topic of discussion just a little bit and okay. you can re-ask that same question it's not is it patents that do that it's really does the ip strategy do that 
Okay. Because your IP strategy is not necessarily exclusive to patents, right? There's a lot of things where you may choose to purposely not patent something, but maintain it as a trade secret. And how an acquiring company, or even just a VC, like, you know, looking at, should they put money into it? You really look at those two things, not just the patent case. Yeah. Um, okay. So next logical question here. So IP does increase, increase value, right? Along with, you know, a number of other things, commercial traction, all this kind of good stuff. Um, but it's, it's like we had a plan for what we wanted to talk about. What is the difference between a patent and a trade secret? Okay. So the, the primary difference between a patent and a trade secret is that a patent is a formal registered intellectual property at a, at a patent office and a patent has to be applied for and protected in each country where you want that protection. So you have to, as part of that, disclose whatever your technology is. A trade secret, on the other hand, is basically information that a company has, and it can be uh, really anything that is not publicly known, how, how you operate your manufacturing processes, um, information, data, and a trade secret can be protected in so much as you put in place a lot of procedures, contracts, non-disclosure agreements with individuals to maintain the secret. Uh, a good example is a Coca-Cola recipe, right? It's, it's not known, but they've put in a lot of procedures in place so that it is a, a trade secret. And with a patent, you sue for patent infringement. And a patent also uh, is a tool that can be used for generating uh, revenue. So can a trade secret, but more so a patent. And a uh, patent, you sue for patent infringement. You have to get, assert the right. Uh, and then a trade secret is something that basically the way to get recourse is if a party that has agreed to keep something secret discloses a trade secret, then you'd have to um, sue them for breach of confidentiality or some trade secret cause of action. Fantastic. Um, <clears throat> anything to add there, Devin? Yeah, I mean, you, you might have situations where, you know, a company that is going to be regulated by the FDA is, is trying to think very meticulously and carefully through their go-to-market strategy, which includes the regulatory landscape, the patent landscape, everything. You know, at some point, those two things are going to combine. Um, and you might think to yourself, well, wait a second, I'm going to have to share with the FDA certain pieces of information that might expose kind of what's going on um, within my, you know, in the area that I'm choosing not to patent, right? I'm trying to keep it as a trade secret, especially if the, it's something that somebody else might like build upon. So I think a lot of people don't necessarily at least in the device space, but they maybe do more in the drug space, but understand this idea of like master files uh, and device master files for the FDA, where you can, in a very secure and confidential way, share a bunch of information, say, you know, this is the special juice that we're making, and these are our SOPs, and these are our work instructions, and this is our validation for that special juice, and it's in a, you know, it's in a master file in a way that the FDA can review it and come back to it and say, but it's protected. It's just between you and them uh, in, a, in a way to be able to Make sure that the work that you're doing is something you can take credit for without exposing yourself too much to the world that you release, you know, you, you release the information that you need, that you want to keep secret. Um, Ed, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that one way to look at that is that for trade secret protection, 
anything you don't want the public to know, uh, it's a trade secret and you have to put procedures in place to maintain that confidentiality. If there's information that one provides in, in public, marketing material on one's website, the device itself, anything that could be reverse engineered in a product, one should, if you want to protect the technology, whatever it might be, a process or structures, a device, that one should consider something for patenting. Uh, it, it is uh, hard to keep a trade secret because of the requirements that one has to put in place just to make sure that whatever is disclosed, that you that one really has the procedure to make sure that people are ensuring that that information is kept confidential. But all in all, if there is something that's publicly disclosed or about to be publicly disclosed, that's a decision point really to consider. Should we patent this? Is it is it some technology that has a process or the device before it goes out that can be patented? And, and also, while we haven't uh, gone into different types of patents, there are patents that cover industrial design on um, products as well. So, so when anything is released, one, one point about patents is if one discloses something that there is an absolute bar in most countries around the world. So it's very, very important to consider patenting before anything is released that could be patented and make that decision somewhere along the product development lifecycle before, before a product is released. Okay. So, so before we get into universities and contract manufacturers, <clears throat> can we talk a little bit about the different kinds of patents that you just kind of alluded to? Um, and also uh, maybe, I don't know if this is part of the same question, but, but patents in the U S versus what protects you globally um, and the different areas of that. And uh, when we get into the global piece, I'll have some more questions there too. Yeah. So there are different types of patents. Basically, there are patents that cover processes, a method of doing something. And there are patents that cover a device, a physical device or structure. They can be in the same patent. And a patent has a set of claims that describe what the invention is. So there are process patents that might cover the process of performing some diagnostic method. There could be a process of a medical device that's performing some operation. There could be a patent that covers a medical device as to the structures, to the components, and an interaction of the components to the to the operation. There's also patents that cover composition. So uh, there, there are a lot of unique chemistries that are used with medical devices, and, and that should be considered too to patent. So there are a lot of different types of coverage of a patent, but primarily you have your, your device, the physical device itself, and then a process of doing something. And also, you can obtain patent protection on the process of manufacturing uh, devices, if there's something unique about that, or creating some type of um, chemical formulation or whatnot. Devin? I would, I would add that in that device space is where I see, at least in my clients and, and folks that I work with, if you're going to explore trade secrets, it's usually in, what I generally see is, it's part of your manufacturing processes. You know, like the secret way that you know to mix these constituents together that, and if you do it in this proportions and you mix in these ways and you heat in these ways, it makes, it makes everything work really, really well. Um, so like in the manufacturing processes, that is, if you're going to explore a trade secret, that is generally where I see 
the trade secret route pursued. Okay, good. So let's actually pause there. I'll come back to my other questions because this leads into probably contract manufacturing a little bit, right? And so um, <clears throat> if you're talking about this area, Devin and Ed, I don't know who answers this first, how do you work with a contract manufacturer to build this into your IP, you know, portfolio, um, you know, cause you're going from, you're, you're making, you know, a small lot of, 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 of product. And now you're saying, okay, Hey, contract manufacturer, I need you to make this, but we need to share in some of this trade secrets and how do we continue to build this IP portfolio in, in a, in a way that protects all of us. Right. Cause I'm sure it's mutually beneficial for the CMO as well. Cause they want to see you be successful because you're their client. So I don't know who wants to kick it off there, but I'm curious on how this relationship evolves. I think it's Devin, uh, uh, with the, with the contract manufacturer. I would proceed with extreme caution. If there's something that you're trying to keep as a trade secret okay. and you have a relationship with a CMO, you may choose to do that one special operation yourself and then become a supplier of material to your own CMO. That way you can really keep it in-house. If you're not going to do that and you don't have the capabilities or you don't want to build out the capabilities of it because you're thinking about yourself as a, you know, a company, then you want to be able to exit at some point. You don't want to build all this brick and mortar and these things to do it. Then it comes down to like putting in place very, very strong contracts between you and the CMO. It comes down to having a very strong and well-worded um, SQA supply, uh, supplier quality agreements. And it also comes down to you doing enough diligence on that CMO to understand, like, can you trust them? Like, even if you have a really good contract in place, even if you have a good S, you know, supply quality agreement in place, you need to do, you owe it to yourselves to do enough diligence to say, we can really trust these guys. They maintain secrets for a whole bunch of other companies. You know, they have a lot to lose if they were to violate the contract. Because if they violate the contract, they don't have a lot to use to lose. But you do, right? If they, ex they expose your thing because they don't have great safeguards in place and you didn't do enough auditing to understand that they've got the right safeguards for your patent, for your trade secret, they're like, oh, well, sorry. And you're kind of screwed, right? So. I would be really, really okay. careful using the CMO. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. You absolutely can use a CMO and there's lots of world-class CMOs out there that have experience, but I would make sure that you have good contractual coverage and you have really good diligence on that company to understand that I feel comfortable using them because your trade secret, you're keeping it a trade secret for a reason. I'd be really careful about putting it in anybody else's hands that could expose your secret. Understood. And so, so, you know, a lot of this, the point of this podcast is, is most of us just don't, right? Trying to get in the mindset of like, what should I be thinking about when I'm going through these steps, right? We, we all know that, you know, there's, 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 um, a bunch of different scenarios out there. Um, but what are the things you should be considering? And so this is really important Devin, hitting on it now, because, you know, a lot of people start discussions with contract manufacturers and and there is always something in there about ip and patents and who owns what and how's it broken down and so um i think to your point it's just hey be careful there's a lot of ways around it determine determine what could be a trade secret and what you what what is a 
you know, maybe an X factor for you and think about different ways of protecting that. So I, I love the thought there. Ed, do you have anything to add to that or? Yeah, I, I think I can just harp again on the confidentiality and IP and these agreements there. There's a relationship of what 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 happens with the manufacturer, what what they're doing. Uh, very, very importantly, again, is nailing down the confidentiality, uh, what you said, who owns what, because with with a process that is being developed, this this other company may have improvements to the process, whatever it might be. And it's very important that uh, that the company owns that that improvement. And there's a lot of negotiation uh, typically in, in some of these areas about who owns what and who brings what IP to uh, one of these uh, manufacturing processes. So it is very important to ensure that you do have ownership of what this manufacturer might develop and also the country in which they're manufacturing some countries might you might not want to go into because the the laws there are not very strong so uh, that that is very important consideration as well can i build on that just a little bit yeah yeah so ed was talking about you know using a manufacturer you know a, a cmo and how they could improve potentially improve your product somewhat and, and making sure that you have very clear understanding before you get into the relationship with your CMO that if you guys come up with an improvement, we own it, right? We'll put your name on the patent. Thank you for that. But we own it. It gets transferred to us. Um, a very simple, he was talking about like them developing improvements to your product. When we're talking about a contract developer, I mean, uh, a contract development organization, a CDO, and let's forget about the M for a second. That obviously you want to, your best practice is to have to work with one where you own everything that they develop that and I have seen cases where that is not the case and startups get themselves in situations where suddenly they don't own everything that the person that they just paid to develop stuff because the way the contracts were written but I want to also like point out to anyone that's looking down that route is that when you're putting those contracts in place with larger experienced CDOs one of the things that people you have to be a little bit careful of is that you either choose to or choose not to before you get involved in a relationship allow them to build their patented technologies into your product so if you're using a cdo they might have certain technologies that they've developed over years let's say a great pipetter or you know whatever technology if you create a situation where you paid them to develop a product and they've built some of their IP into your product, you then have to make sure you secure licenses to use their IP moving forward. And it's their IP, not yours. Right. And then how do you make improvements to it? It just gets really, it, it can get really messy if we haven't clearly laid out their expectations and the responsibilities of everyone up front. My personal preference is to avoid using situations where we allow the CDO to build their proprietary technology in unless we get you know very very clear terms up front that says we can use it for all we want to and there's no royalty and there's no this and there's no that involved it's just part of using you as a cdo we get you know you know rights to be able to use that technology going forward so it's another thing to be careful of not just with the okay. cmo but with the cdo as well yeah <clears throat> super helpful um okay um ed back to I, I know I asked a large question and then we kind of we kind of went into the CMO, CDMO, CDO topic. But <clears throat> from a global patent standpoint, um, uh, first in the U.S., 
maybe can you make sense of like what a provisional patent is, the timing there, and then what it means to be issued a patent. Um, but then also tell me about patents in in the rest of the world, right? International is. Do you have to? Could do you just have to go to Europe and Europe and China and Japan, or like how does that work from a global standpoint? I guess you know, like for regulatory. You submit in the U.S., and then you submit to Canada, and you submit to the EU, and then China and Japan, they're all different, but some overlap. Walk me through some of that landscape. Okay, so I, I think generally what we're talking about uh, IP strategy for a protection of a, a company's product. Often, while a company is developing a technology, there, there are tools that can be used with regard to a type of patent application that is filed. And one of those tools is a provisional patent application. And there are benefits in using that. And it allows one to update the patent application basically within a year, add more material to it. Uh, some, sometimes uh, in, in the case of life sciences type of technologies, typically you need some type of data to support some type of um, method of uh, some type of technology to cure some type of disease. Uh, but typically with a provisional application, it's something that you can use uh, append and add more material to it. At some point, you have to file what's called a non-provisional application. And what that does is basically locks into place the technology, the meets and bounds, the description of what that technology is and what it does, how it does it. And uh, the strategy generally of filing an application around the world, if you're in Europe, if you're in the US, China, anywhere, typically where the company is located is where that uh, first application is filed. And then one has to consider where, where else do we file? And you have basically uh, a year to decide from that original filing when to do that. And there are two approaches, basically. One is called a PCT application, patent cooperation treaty application, that effectively gives you another 18 months to kick the can down the road and file in other countries. Or within that first year, you can file directly into other countries. Like I said before, to protect technology, one has to file a patent application in the country where you want to protect that technology. So it does become very cost prohibitive to file in many countries. So part of this IP strategy, one really does need to understand those countries' jurisdictions where the product will be sold or used. And oftentimes uh, that means filing in a handful of countries where you think the, the product will ultimately be sold or used or receive approval. And then those countries that don't have patent protection, then someone else is free to actually use that, that, that technology in that country. Okay, um, I'm gonna have a question, Devin, for you um, about how important patent protection is and what you look for at each stage from an investor standpoint. But first, I, I would really like to cover um, the university aspect of this as well. Um, you know, I, I almost hesitated and said university slash hospital, but for the most part, um, you know, when it's a, a hospital group, you know, they have an innovation venture arm of the hospital that's probably spinning off some of these companies and the IP. But within a university, um, you know, uh, people will tend to look through their IP portfolio and say, hey, well, whoa, I want to maybe spin this out. Um, 
but there is strategy to when and how you spin out the IP from the university. And so I don't know who wants to start, Ed or um, um, Devin, but uh, maybe just kind of lay the groundwork for, for that and what that means. Because it's not, I guess what I'm trying to, to set it up even further, it's not find IP license as fast as possible, right? Sometimes there is a strategy to maybe not doing that. So I'm just curious on, on your thoughts there and kind of set that up. So I'll, I'll let, I want to jump in first and then have Ed kind of clean up with nuts and bolts of it. But when you're talking, I'm going to pick up where you left off with university slash hospital. Because um, it'll help okay. illustrate the point that I, that I want to make here. Great. Sometimes you have to think a little bit about put yourselves in the shoes of the license of the people where you're getting the license from. Okay. So there are organizations and there are universities who pride themselves on generating a lot of IP and generating a lot of revenue. Universities are businesses generating a lot of revenue from materials that they invent. So the, the licensing offices from a university like that, and I won't name any names, but universities that are really, really heavy on tech and like push a ton of tech out, you know, you know that part of their financial planning is how much money they make off of like IP that they develop and then license out versus let's say a much smaller university, maybe one that's just purely like a research university and they, their operating budget doesn't have as much emphasis on their IP side they're going to be a bit more flexible in working with you. It's going to be a little easier to patent, not well, to, to secure the IP that you need to be able to do things with. And I would say the same thing is generally true for hospitals, right? I mean, hospitals are obviously also businesses. They also have to make money, but for the most part, they're not there to like spin out as much tech as they possibly can and, and make money on it. So a lot of times it's, this is good for our name. Let's get some more technology out. And they're also, in my experience, a little bit easier to license, not all of them, but many of them, a little bit easier to license the technology out. So when you're talking, I'll, I'll, and I want Ed to kind of get into like, what does it mean to really license the technology? But when you're in those negotiations and you're kind of thinking through it, put yourself a little bit in their shoes and, and kind of think about like, is this a financial motivation for this other organization I'm trying to communicate with? Yeah, thank you, Devin. I think that was a, a good distinction between there are universities that are that do generate a significant amount of revenue from intellectual property patents and working with those tech transfer offices are a little more challenging than other universities that are more amenable to providing more rights or even full transfer of rights to the, the inventors uh, that, that have created the technology. So I think what's in, interesting point here is looking again at this kind of exit strategy when one does due diligence basically there if you draw a circle and put your intellectual property in it in this bucket does the company have the right to continue forward with that technology or what will prevent them from doing that and working with universities these these are license agreements that are put in place and you really have to understand 
how long do you have the right to use this technology? Do you have exclusive rights to use it? What, what do you have to do as far as performance to continue that license? So the first thing that I would do when I'm looking at something like this is that license agreement. If one is going to invest in the company, what can the university do to claw back the rights? So it's, it's really important when negotiating those, those rights to be able to have the ownership of the rights at some point or be able to control the destiny of where this IP, uh, how it moves forward and that you actually have control of it. Yeah, that's super helpful. So go ahead, Devin, you have something to add. I was just gonna say, obviously like in a venture, in, in a you fundraising mode, it's important, right? But it's, it's, it's also very important in an M&A situation. So part of your exit strategy for your startup is, yeah, we're going to build it up to a point. We're not going to create this as a giant behemoth of a company and take it public and do all these different things. We're going to exit and sell it to a strategic. So the strategic, you you know, is going to look very, very carefully at where you licensed your technology from and what working with that licensor, yeah. the person that's giving you the license, working with them might look like in the future. Yeah, so... so um, this is going to be a long-winded question for you, Devin, but because um, we're going through this with a ton of startups right now that are either currently licensing technology out of universities or already have, right? And we're, we're going through a lot of these discussions, and um, we have to go through these agreements with a, uh, you know, under a microscope because um, there are things, and, and just from what you all have said today, you could tell with throughout the the IP life cycle of your company, you know, there are little things each step of the way that can be, you know, absolute, uh, like huge potholes <laughs> later down, later down the road. Right. So, um, what I'm trying to articulate to the, to the group is, Hey, each step of the way, you know, you got to be really dialed into what you're looking at from your IP standpoint when you're taking it out of the university, um, you know, as you're filing your patents and figuring out your IP portfolio, you know, all these different kind of things. So obviously, Devin, when you're doing due diligence for, for the VC or the investor, you're going back and looking at all these things, right? My question is, though, is should startups be to a certain place? Are you also looking at that? So you're obviously going back and looking at what they've currently done. But when you see a company, you go, okay, well, they're raising a Series A. Does that immediately for you say, well, they should be here in their IP journey or they should be here in their IP journey? Or how do you look at that? I wouldn't tie it to the series. I would tie it to the maturity of the product and how close it is to being commercialized. Okay. Right? Because you, you might have multiple series before you can bring an expensive product to market or you could maybe do everything with the Series A. So mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's series specific. I really think it's maturity and close to market commercialization. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's most important, like if you were to like look at the far left side of that spectrum um, and say like really, really early, at least do you have a plan that you're going to start to follow to, to move forward with intention and with purpose and in a, in a humble way to say, we know we don't. We know we need to explore these things, and we're going to do them at these times, and we haven't done it yet, right? So, at least if I'm looking, and it's an earlier stage company, I'm just mean like further away from from commercialization. I want you to have at least articulated a plan for how you're going to get FTO done if you haven't done it already, 
or how much have you done and how professional was that work? You know, what, is, what are you thinking right now from a, from a patent versus trade secret perspective? Have you thought about those things? And have you thought about them in a, in a way that demonstrates that you acknowledge you're not the subject matter expert in the field, but you're, you're doing a pretty damn good job by doing as much research as you can and learning because you're a startup and we understand you don't have the money to bring in professionals. But you should have a plan that says at some point we're going to. If you don't have that plan, if you're just kind of moving along blind, we're developing this technology, you know, um, you know, I worked on it at my PhD at blah, blah, blah school, and, and I'm going to build this out as a company. Like, have you talked with the university tech transfer office yet? Do you have any of these plans in place? If, if you don't, you're going to be blindsided by it. And then, of course, that makes me wonder, well, what else have you not looked at thoroughly? And so now I'm going to be red flagged all over the place and, and worrying. Is there a pattern of behavior here um, that would cause me to be concerned? But at least start with acknowledging that this is important and kind of here's the steps that we've taken toward it. Now, if you're much closer to having, you've already done your alphas and your betas and you've done some clinical work, you know, and, and you're much closer to like launching the product there, I'm going to dive deeper into all of that to make sure that you have really, really robust moats of protection around your technology. Awesome. Ed, anything else to uh, add in or sprinkle in in closing? Yeah, I, I think adding on what Devin said about having having a, a plan or at least understanding how what your approach to intellectual property is and not letting dates and publications of technology go by without considering how you're going to protect it. So it is very, very important early, early on to know, again, before anything is disclosed, that one, one needs to consider to patent, whether or not they do, uh, that, that's, that's okay, but to at least con consider to patent something, because I have seen many instances when, when technology is published over years gone by and there's nothing we can do. So they, they have a, some, some companies have a very good idea and they, they didn't patent it and they, they come back later. And again, if there's really interesting technology, there, there are ways to uh, file patent applications inexpensively. I mean, we, we, we try to work with companies to try to create a, again, this cost-effective IP plan. So there's not a, a lot of upfront um, expenses for patenting, but there, there are ways to do that. But again, really, really, really having a plan upfront, knowing what your technology is and making a decision one way or another to patent something or not before something is uh, made public. Yeah, no, guys, this is awesome. Um, you know, I think something that um, uh, something that we need to or, or startups need to understand is just, you know, hey, I understand my IP portfolio is very important throughout the duration of my company. But when do I think about it? What are the steps? What's what's the order in which I need to do things? And how's that tie into the rest of the company? And I think both of you did a really good job of explaining the thought process and, and where the gaps lie and 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 where where you need to be thinking about it and when um, this was was super helpful, uh, at least for me and hopefully for the listeners. So with that being said, uh, Ed, Devin, thank you both so much for doing the episode. Uh, there's a lot in here. Um, and
and uh, that's the beauty of the podcast. You go back and re-listen to it as much as you want to, right? So I uh, appreciate you both for, for hopping on. Uh, this will be episode two of the three-part series here. And um, uh, hang on. We'll chat offline. Thank you, Dwight. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.